Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, January 30th by me, Rob Schaff, Pastor of Discipling. This is the final message in our Winter 2022 sermon series entitled Messy Grace, Messy Truth. For more information about our church, check out sardisfellowship.com. Ten years ago, I got to have a table at the Vancouver Comic Arts Festival, and I had two main goals going to that VanCAF, it's called, uh, to make some like-minded comic friends, and then also to spread the love of Jesus. And it was my first time having a table at a comic convention, and it turns out that getting a table was actually a huge fluke, because the comics-making community in North America is actually a pretty small, close, tight-knit community. There's only like five big publishers. They were all at this convention. There were tons of comic artists, world-class. It was, it was pretty crazy that I got a table. Um, and in this very small industry, everybody knows everybody. And I quickly got the impression that the people who are at the neighboring tables around me, uh, that they all kind of were not strangers like I was. They knew each other. They were friends from kind of before, maybe even that they were family. And the reason I got this impression is because legitimately, over the course of the weekend, my table neighbors would actually often turn to me and say, Look, sorry if we don't talk to you much. It's just you got to understand these conventions are a bit like a family reunion. And unbeknownst to me at the time, many of the people that had tables around my table at this convention were LGBTQ2 plus cartoonists who are literally each other's support group in life. Um, and so I was very much an outsider. And I gleaned through reading their comics, but also kind of through eavesdropping on their conversations, that actually many of them had been very and deeply hurt by Christianity and by the church. And there I was, this Christian, this recent Bible school graduate, uh, this youth pastor, just trying to shine a light in the world through my silly comic strips. Now, other than making comic strips, it was beginning to become clear to me that I wasn't probably likely to find like-minded individuals because there's a lot of very, you know, people were of a very different mindset than me. Um, but it turns out that even the comics that we were making really didn't have a whole lot in common. Theirs were literally these literary works, uh, really deep and thoughtful with layers and layers of meaning. There's artistic integrity through and through from page one to page 400. These were modern parables for a hurting community. People would walk up to their tables, open their books, and, and tears would be like streaming down their faces because it just meant so much to them. It was almost like a religious experience. These comics were changing people's lives. And my comics were kind of the exact opposite. They're just simple daily doodles trying to make people laugh kind of by any means necessary. So I remember at my table, I was starting to feel a little bit deflated. Now, I did have some friends, some family come and cheer me on over the, the weekend, and that was really encouraging, and I really appreciated that. Um, but keep in mind, I, I get to see them all the time, and my goal was to be at this convention to make some new like-minded comic friends to shine the light of Jesus. I was, I was discouraged. I was feeling discouraged, and I was beginning to wonder why I was even there. And then a random dude from the crowd kind of wandered up to my table and shook his head and said, man, this, this convention, like, I just don't get it. Where are all the Christian comics? And I thought to myself, ho, oh, ho, maybe this guy is the reason why I'm here. So I put up my hand and I said, hey, man, I'm Christian, and check out my comics. And he took my book and he thumbed through it and he was smiling. And he said, 
these aren't Christian comics. And I said, uh, what do you mean they're not Christian comics? I mean, they're not like tracts, but like I'm a Christian and I make comics and these are the, my comics. I'm trying to bring joy. And, and he's like, no, 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 no. Puts my book back on the table and says, these are not Christian comics. And he glares at me, shakes his head and disappears into the crowd. And I remember being so annoyed. Like, why did this guy get to decide what is or isn't a Christian comic? Who died and made him the gatekeeper of Christian expression? And how does making comics, how does it not get me an in with other comic creators? I just don't understand it. I remember being so frustrated. Getting to table at this world-class comic convention was actually a real low moment for me as an artist. On day one, anyway. Reflecting on this experience later with Diana, I realized that making comics, it may have earned me a table at a convention, but it didn't actually entitle me to a place in their community. And believing in Jesus, the second thing I learned, believing in Jesus doesn't automatically mean that Christians agree with each other or even understand each other. And that one maybe is obvious to some, but it was kind of my first real run-in with it in, in real life. Now, I want it to be heard, I want it to be understood, and I want it to be known by the other comic makers, and I expected to be heard and understood and known by other Christians. But it turns out that I actually wasn't that interested in listening and understanding and getting to know anybody, comic creator or Christian alike, and at that convention, I'd failed to comprehend the meaning of a prayer that I have said and sung many times. It goes like this. Lord, grant that I not seek so much to be consoled as to console, nor to be understood as much as to understand. O Lord, grant that I not seek so much to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. But thankfully, as long as we are alive, we can learn from our mistakes, and day two of the convention was much better. Now, in this sermon series, we've been talking about messy grace and messy truth and how situations in life can get messy. When faced with a messy situation, we tend to react with either conviction, that is, this is what's right and what you're doing is wrong and you should know this, or compassion, which is kind of like, no, don't worry, I'm here for you. We'll, we'll sort that out later. I'm, I'm here for you, right? Here's an easy example. Let's say that a kid touches the stove and burns their hand and they're sitting there crying. You could react with, ha ha, I told you so. If I told you once, I've told you a million times. If you touch the stove, you're going to burn your hand. I called it. Kid burned his hand, right? That would be reacting with conviction. And on the other hand, you could react with, oh man, are you okay? Oh, come here, come here. Which would be probably the more appropriate response when a kid burns their hand on the stove. But only being compassionate and never bringing conviction of, hey, this is actually the right way and the wrong way to behave in a kitchen, right way to use a stove, right? If the cooking lessons are only compassionate and never filled with conviction, uh, it's likely that that kid is never going to understand that stoves are hot, knives are sharp, and you need to be careful. Or at least if they're going to understand that, they're going to learn it the hard way which probably isn't the best way. And that's just in cooking. Life gets really messy. And reacting only in conviction or compassion and just going with that is the temptation that we feel every time we bump up against something, a messy situation that we don't know what to do with. And there is no shortage of messy situations for us to react to. When we talk about where, uh, where grace and truth get 
messy in your life, you don't actually have to look that far. Just pick any person who drives you crazy and ask yourself the question that Pastor Rod ended last week's sermon with. Are your interactions with them motivated by conviction or by compassion? Are you gracious or are you judgmental? Do we love these people? Now, in John chapter 9, there's this messy grace, messy truth story. It's compassion versus conviction. So Jesus heals a man born blind. And the man is stoked because his life is changed. But here's where it gets messy. Jesus did the miracle on the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. Why, Jesus? Why couldn't you just have waited one day? Heal this guy tomorrow. The Sabbath is like the one day you're not supposed to do any work on. Because everybody knows God created the world in six days, five, six, and then he rested on the seventh. And that everybody else is supposed to follow that pattern of example. No work on the Sabbath. And actually, people even made rules to protect the rules, to protect the rules that kept people from working on the Sabbath. Everybody knows the Sabbath is a big deal. Well, at least every God-fearing person knows that anyway, right? So the community... Seeing Jesus heal this man on the Sabbath is caught up in a controversy. How could Jesus let this happen? Is Jesus even from God? And the religious leaders say, no, he can't be from God because he's broken God's law by healing on the Sabbath. He is clearly a sinner. What say you, healed man? And the healed man says, well, I actually don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. Fight, 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 fight. The religious people say, sinner, how dare you lecture us? And they kick him out from among them. He is no longer uh, welcome at their gathering. So later Jesus finds this guy and he reveals himself to him because the guy hadn't had a chance to actually see who Jesus was, what he looked like, right? So the man who was healed worships Jesus. And then Jesus says, for judgment, I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees, they overhear this interaction, and they say, what are you implying, Jesus? Are you saying that we are blind? And here is where we pick up the story in John 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out all his own, when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger, and in fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Now, a few weeks ago, I got to do this artist-in-residency at my daughter's school. It was really cool. I got to teach art every day, uh, art lessons to different classrooms. And I got to hang out with the teachers, got to know them. It was really awesome. Uh, But one day, I'm eating lunch in the library with all of the other teachers. And under the hum of the library conversation, through a brick wall and through really thick glass windows... Uh, I could faintly make out the sound of kids playing on the park, which was about, you know, a couple hundred meters away. And then all of a sudden, I hear very faintly over the library conversation, through the brick wall, across a couple hundred meters, I hear a kid crying. And I'm sitting there eating my lunch, and I think to myself, yeah, that's my kid. My kid is crying right now. Sitting there, I tried to rationalize it away. I was like, no way. Like, there's 400 other kids at this school. There's not a chance that you could pick her out through a brick wall, thick glass, over a conversation, a couple hundred meters. Like, there's no way that that's, that's, you're hearing it accurately. But I knew that it was true. 
I knew that it was true, and it turns out that I was actually true. It was like, I was right. It turns out she had tripped on her boots and got a bit scraped up on the ice, uh, and she was fine. It was no big deal, but she was like, she was upset, and I did actually hear her cry. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. I knew her voice in a crowd instantly. Why? Because I'm her dad. There's nothing magical about it. I just know what her cries sound like. I know her. And shepherd and sheep, they know each other. There's nothing magical about it. It's just this undeniable connection that they have. Sheep can spot a counterfeit shepherd from a mile away, and they only follow the voice of their shepherd because they know they are the shepherd's sheep, and the shepherd knows who the sheep are. So remember, Jesus is telling this little parable to answer the Pharisees' question, are you implying that we're born blind? So Jesus tells them, this parable, this story. He says, sheep know the voice of their shepherd and you can't fool them, right? You get that. And he says, the shepherd knows each sheep. Even in a big communal sheep pen with a ton of sheep that aren't his, the shepherd knows each sheep by name. He knows the attributes, right? And they're like, yep. So then Jesus is saying, so tell me, who's blind to the truth? Because my sheep know me and I know them. And they don't get it. So Jesus continues. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. When Jesus says, I am the gate, don't think like inanimate gate with a latch, you know, and a hinge. Think more along the lines of like a sheep pen bouncer, letting sheep come and go and keeping the thieves and the robbers at bay. Shepherds would sleep at the opening of the pen to take care of the sheep, to kind of keep track of them, to let them in and out to graze. And in that way, the shepherds would function as a gate. And Jesus is saying this, thieves and robbers only want to kill and destroy, but I'm a gate that's here to give people Full life. And Jesus continues his explanation. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. When the going gets tough, the good shepherd puts his life on the line, but the hired hand cares Nothing for the sheep. Is Jesus' point starting to come into focus with this parable? Thieves and robbers don't want what's best for the sheep. They only want to destroy them. And hired hands don't really care for the sheep, and they're gone at the first sign of trouble. But a good shepherd protects and cares and loves the sheep, even to the point of putting their life on the line, to the point of death, because they're not actually in it for themselves and what's good for them. They're in it for what's good for the sheep. Jesus continues, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command... I received from my father. If the Pharisees didn't know what Jesus was talking about before, they certainly don't know now. 
They don't know that Jesus is going to die on the cross for Israel and for everybody. They don't know that Jesus is going to raise up to life again and a church is going to be made of every nation and every situation would be under his care. They didn't know that Jesus was calling, that the calling that Jesus had received, he received from God. But Jesus knew because Jesus knew the Father exactly the same way as how a sheep knows the good shepherd. Once again, they don't know what Jesus is talking about. And that's why this little story ends like this. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, there is a book that I recently read called In the Name of Jesus, Reflections on Christian Leadership, written by Henry Nouwen, and it has this quote. Dealing with burning issues without being rooted in a deep personal relationship with God easily leads to divisiveness because our sense of self is caught up in our opinion about a given subject. And please allow me the freedom to modify this uh, quotation for our explicit context. Dealing with a conviction versus compassion issue without being rooted in a deep personal relationship with God easily leads to divisiveness because our sense of self is caught up in our opinion about the conviction versus compassion issue. Or in other words, without a relationship with God and without a strong rooted relationship in God, it is very easy to let my opinions become what I let define my sense of me. And then any challenge against my opinion becomes an attack on me. And that's exactly what happened to the Pharisees. They weren't rooted in a deep relationship with God. They were rooted in their own opinions and understandings of Sabbath law. That's why they got so defensive and almost take it so personally when a blind man is healed on the Sabbath. Their reaction then is to lash out and kick him out. Otherwise, they would kind of lose what they're all about, right? But Jesus had a deep-rooted relationship with the Father. In verse, in verse 15, Jesus says, As the Father knows me, I know, my, I know the Father. And Jesus knows and is known by his sheep. Verse 14, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. So when Jesus saw a need, the blind man, he met it and healed him out of his deep relationship with his Father. And when doing things that challenged the understanding of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, things like they had the opinion that God's command for rest on the Sabbath was like absolute. Um, it was clear to Jesus that they were missing something in their perspective. That they were letting their opinions define their identity instead of their relationship with God. They were missing it. God had worked this crazy miracle among them and they couldn't see it. And they didn't care about this man who had been healed. They only cared about how they saw themselves as being right about Sabbath laws. And at best, these religious leaders were showing themselves to be hired hands who abandoned the sheep at the first sign of trouble. And at worst, they're thieves and robbers actively destroying the sheep for their own gain, exploiting them to their own advantage. And that is why Jesus said, the blind will see and those who will see will become blind. And also, now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Because they only cared about being right and having people agree with them and their opinions. They didn't love the man. 
They were blinded to what really mattered, to what God really actually cared about, and to what God was doing. And ironically, it turns out that not only were they unloving, but actually they were wrong in their understanding of Sabbath law, because after all, as Jesus has trying to demonstrate to them now, and as he states clearly in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that's why I think that this is a messy grace, messy truth story. Jesus didn't wait a day to heal the guy so that it would be easier on the man or so that it would be easier on Jesus or so that it would be easier on the people who were obsessed with conviction and lacked compassion. Jesus had a greater understanding of who God is and what God is up to. And Jesus had a better understanding of who his sheep were and what they needed. And so Jesus stepped into the mess and he acted with compassion and conviction intention. He did the right thing and the loving thing, and he had the tough conversation with the Pharisees. He loved the blind man and, and the Pharisees, right? And we know that we are called to approach messy conversations as Jesus did, differently than how the world would naturally do it. Instead of doubling down on our gut reactions, we're supposed to have more in common with the man born blind and who was healed than we do with the Pharisees. We need to remember that we ourselves have been healed by Jesus. We need to remember that Jesus is the gatekeeper and that we aren't, and that's a good thing. We need to remember that Jesus knows what to do even when we don't. And we need to remember to live as those whose eyes have been opened by Jesus, not as those who refuse to see what God is up to. We listen to the voice of Jesus, not to the traditions of men. We see people not as issues to be dealt with, but as people to be loved. We step out and love people, even when it isn't a popular decision. We put in the work to get to know people for who they really are and let them get to know who we really are. And we follow Jesus and we take the initiative to love. We find our identity, our meaning in our relationship with God and not in our opinions on any given topic. Now, we all have areas in our life where conviction and compassion are hard to hold together in tension, and we don't know what to do about it. Most of the time, we either end up going with our gut reaction, either abandoning our convictions or failing to be compassionate. We say either, ah, oh, look, it's, it's really no big deal, whatever, or we just disagree with people and write them off. But Jesus held both conviction and compassion in perfect tension and Jesus took initiative to love. It's a good thing that Jesus is the gatekeeper, that he's the good shepherd who knows his sheep. He demonstrates over and over and over again in the Bible that he loves people and he wants people to find him. And it is our job as believers in Jesus, it's our job to hear his voice, to follow him, and we don't have to worry about keeping people out of the pen. But I think we do have some important work that we are supposed to be worrying about. And that is to take initiative like Jesus did. Now, back to that Vancouver Comic Arts Van Calf story. At the comics convention, the other comic creators would not let me into their camp. And the one Christian that I met would not let me into his Christian camp either. And in both cases, I am like 100% sure that the reason nobody let me in their camp is because I felt like I was entitled and owed to be in both camps. And that's just not how it works. I thought I was entitled to belong, that people should listen to me, but I wasn't willing to enter into a conversation. 
to get to know people on their terms. It was on me to take the initiative, to humble myself, and to start and enter into honest conversation with both camps. And at the time, I just didn't know it, but I do now. And that's what I've been trying to do ever since that convention, with both the indie comics creator community and the Christian community. I've been trying to get to know and understand people on their own terms and love them for who they are, because the reality is that I have found my true belonging as the sheep in Jesus's flock, and I've got an overflowing well of love from God, and I am now freed up to love others in this way, and I no longer feel the pressing need to get from those communities uh, something which they are unwilling to get, like to give me, which is belonging. But having found my belonging in Jesus, I can freely give love to them. Now, I often fail at this miserably, but I think that there is actually one huge advantage that Christians have over the rest of the world when it comes to, to, to converse, conversing and, and, uh, and loving others in a messy grace, messy truth way. And that is this. We get to be a part of the church, and the church is a great place for us as believers to practice this initiative-taking, conversation-starting, authentic loving. Because if nothing else, believers in Jesus, we have Jesus in common, and that is exactly the right place to start. We practice seeing past the pressing issues, the hot takes, and we choose to love the people behind the pressing issues and the hot takes. We love them with an outpouring of the love that God has lavished on us. We practice doing that with each other, holding conviction and compassion in tension because I'm pretty sure there are times when we drive each other's crazy, right? So we practice with each other so we can love as Christ loved us in grace and truth. And we practice doing that in the church so that we can go and be that for the world. And amazingly enough, often actually what I've come to realize is that when we love in that way, it's, it's actually love that we get in return, which is pretty awesome. It's pretty cool. So, I'd like to end this service, I'd like to end this sermon with uh, John 10, 9 to 10, just as a reminder. Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's my prayer for us and my prayer for everyone that we come into contact with, that they may come to have life and have it to the full, not only in Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.